welcome to episode 18 of our podcast. I'm Alex, one half of The Sober Experiment. And I'm Lisa, the other half. You're really good at that now. <laughs> I'm so good at it. I was like on the edge of my seat, building myself up for it. I was a bit nervous that you might actually just start talking before I finish. I felt you looking at me. <laughs> so do you like my hair? I really do like your hair. Even though you've messed with our logo, I do really like it. It suits you. You look lovely. It's not 10 years off you. Logo ruiner. Yeah, that's I've what you're I've got spots, are. so I definitely am 10 years younger. Maybe we should turn the logo around now and then show your spots. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? I've had a really, really good week this week and proper enjoyed going out with everybody. And I know this will be like released later than what we've actually done, but I yeah. think it's dead important to say how fantastic sober nights out are. It was such a good night out out. It was a good night out out. You know what? Thinking about that though, one of the girls said to me on when we were getting ready to go out out that for the first time in ages that she actually craved a glass of Prosecco she said for the first time I just really wanted one and I was just thinking is it because that's the first time we've all been out together um it's the getting ready isn't it yeah I was dead excited since like Wednesday and we didn't go out till the Friday (laughs) but uh, on Wednesday I was saying to my husband like this is where now I would have been that excited I'd have been excited Wednesday Thursday then Friday would have gone out and whether it was a good night or a bad night I'd have just been like right this is my night out I'm gonna get wasted yeah. and that's why I think I used to be such a binge drinker because the excitement would build and build and then the next day I'd feel really down and sad and always put that down to just the hangover but it's not because I was dead sad you know yeah I've been a bit like that I think I've been exactly the same. The build-up was... I felt like I was going to my first ever school disco. <laughs> like, for a week, I was so excited. I was listening to the music so I could prepare and learn the songs. No, I know. It's like I had them all blasted in my car, and that does trigger you. It does, and I think that's what you say about the girl that said that. It triggers those kind of emotions of the used-to-be's because your brain's still programmed to think that way, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I wonder if it might be an idea for some people, if it's not a major trigger afterwards, to have, like, non-alcoholic drinks in the fridge ready for times like that. Yeah. Because, you know, maybe if that was open while you were getting ready, that'd still give you that same kind of feeling, wouldn't it? Yeah, the occasion feeling. Yeah. But you know what else I was thinking as well? And obviously it's been a long time for you now and a little bit less time for me, but there is no way I could have done that kind of night out a few months ago. No. You have, it's such a kind of progressive thing, sobriety, isn't it? You yeah. Know, yeah, you know, you, you suddenly become like, it's like being a butterfly, I always think. You know, it like, like oh, I can test my wings and then now I can fly with confidence. That sounds dead cheesy and I know it does. <laughs> Do you know what? It's true. Like, there's no way I could have gone and danced and been around all those zombie-looking drunk people. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk more about them, but this honestly, there's no way I could have done that without feeling like I was missing out. Even though I'd never on the on the night, there's no way I wanted to look and feel like that. I loved that my makeup didn't melt down my face and that I wasn't falling all over and I didn't break a leg or an arm or whatever else I've broken I haven't broke a leg yet <laughs> I nearly broke my blooming leg the other night and the blisters on my feet ridiculous I tell you what I'll call numbs blisters well and I said that to you <laughs> when we were going out you said to Sam he spoke about your shoes and that they'd hurt later and he was like oh no I won't be bothered later and I was like Alex 
you probably still will be bothered because you don't have alcohol to numb that so it would your feet would still hurt well after you said that I went to the little corner Sainsbury's and bought some compede and what you don't know is that when I was in the taxi on the way around to the club put them on did you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, put my compedes on. Oh, we're so organised. Oh, no, no. I know. So, what about then going back to like day one all the time, or going back to the beginning, shall we say? What, what do you think about that in terms of would you have been able to have that night out? Would you have been able to cope with that amount of alcohol around you at the beginning? I actually would. I went out a couple of times because um, I do like going out. I'm a I'm a people watcher and I don't I have really bad form or fear of missing out like really really bad and I found that I still have that even now so I'm usually still last at these events um, we were quite late weren't we yeah we was I weren't last though and I'm so glad <laughs> oh I was ready to go like yeah, what I time was, was it it was about half one yeah time. about half one in the morning which is really late for us sober people <laughs> yeah we're normally in bed yeah <laughs> well in bed so I was ready to go at that point um, but right at the beginning yeah I went on a couple of nights out I wouldn't have been able to go to that extreme I don't think and I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed it I think being surrounded by so many like-minded people that have been on the same journey and we've kind of all progressed together I think it was like being in a little bubble wasn't it our little circle of dancers and then all the like drunk people on the outside it really was like that oh yeah oh so yeah I I do think um I was all right at the beginning but I do know it's really really hard for people and obviously I work going out every weekend I only did it a couple of times and I certainly wouldn't want to be doing it every weekend in fact I'm not even gonna pretend any different I'm done now for ages (laughs) (laughs) I'm done for ages as well you see whereas when we were drinking we'd have been saying oh Man, I think we were still done for a while, but done for different reasons. You'd go, I feel rough, I feel too rough, and we'll do it again at another point. But you forget, don't you, as well? Yeah. You forget, and that's the thing. But this, there's so many memories, and I'm just excited that they're going to stay with us. Yeah, and remember it all. It's yeah. so lovely looking back at the pictures and actually smiling at them instead of going, oh, my God. This is just before I did that. Yeah, like, <laughs> or, or deleting them. Like, I used to delete all the pictures where I've, like, happily been able to see them go all over social media and be dead chuffed about it. Yeah, and we just looked the same from the start till the end of the night, apart from me starting to get sweaty head near the end of the night. That's just an Alex characteristic, isn't it? Yeah, I did um, a selfie when I got home in the mirror because I've not done one before I went out, so I did one when I came home and I looked at just the same as I did when I went out, although a little bit tireder, I think. Yeah, it was tiring, that's the only thing. So we're really excited, aren't we, today? We are really excited. Yay. We're speaking to Lisa's hero. <laughs> <laughs> when I've not been a massive reader, you read a lot more than I do. Yeah. So when I first stopped drinking, there was just a couple of books that I read. And this one had to be my favourite, favourite one. I just related to her so much and I'm dead excited to say that we're talking to... Claire Pooley! (laughs) (laughs) We actually can't wait. No, we really can't. We're talking to Claire Pooley, um, the author of The Sober Diaries. Now, Claire's book is a really, really honest story, isn't it, of a year in her life, really, about quitting booze. And then Claire got some really devastating news within that year. And she'd got 
the diagnosis of breast cancer. So by the end of her first year of not drinking, um, she was completely booze-free and cancer-free. So that is one hell of a year, isn't it? It is, but it also shows, doesn't it, that, that we talk about, you know, whatever your life, sober or not sober, shit still happens. But yeah. when you're sober, you deal with it so much better. I mean, she talks through it so lovely, doesn't so she? So lovely. And I just think for everything that she went through, the book is, it's just so upbeat funny yeah. positive it's just so inspiring yeah yeah and i love the bit where she talks about ending up with wine on her face and if you've not read the book it's just like a proper comedy moment of this sober person who ends up with like red wine in the face <laughs> <laughs> it's just lovely and i can't wait to speak to her so, so yeah take a listen <laughs> i'm so excited that you're in the living room <laughs> <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so, so Josh, I'm Alex. And I'm Lisa. <laughs> I'm Claire. <laughs> Hi, Claire. And it's Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, Lisa. <laughs> I'm really excited. You have been by far my favourite person to get on here. Oh, thank you. That's so kind of you. <laughs> We're going to go straight in, I think, aren't we? Um, your book genuinely got me from the get-go and I found you so relatable, laugh-out-loud funny. So when I'd stopped drinking, to find somebody that I just thought, oh my God, I'm not on my own. Um, and we recommend Sober Diaries to everybody. everybody. Oh, thank you. What did you do, Claire? Because you didn't have your book to recommend to yourself. <laughs> so why don't you write it? That, that's sort of why I wanted to write it because, you know, I, I felt like you, I felt really alone. You know, I didn't think there was anybody who really understood what I was going through. And, you know, it was only after I started writing my blog, which was my form of therapy, that I found so many people all over the world who said, actually, I feel exactly like that too. And it made me realize that you know, we might be living in completely different places and we might be different ages and, you know, different sort of family circumstances and all sorts of stuff. But, you know, the stuff we go through when we quit drinking is so similar, you know. So I would, on my blog, I would say things like, you know, I used to I used to panic about cashiers, you know, when I went to the supermarket or, yeah. or the shop and I'd worry that I was being judged by the cashiers and they think, oh, she was in here yesterday. And so, you know, and, and I thought that was just a really weird quirk of mine and that I was just slightly crazy. And, you know, I wrote about it in my blog and I had people everywhere going, oh God, I do that too. Yeah. <laughs> and it just made me realise that actually... You know, as I said, our, our stories are so similar. So, so that's really why I wanted to do it because I wanted other people to realise that it's really it's not us. You know, there isn't anything wrong with us. It's the alcohol that is causing you know us to behave in strange ways. It's not that we're just going crazy. It's like a roller coaster book, isn't it? Of emotions from beginning, and I guess that's what getting sober is about. It's ups and yeah. And there's, there's a couple of things stick in my mind from reading it. And I read it probably about a year ago now. But there's a couple of things really stick in my mind. There's the one where you get the wine in your face, which is just like that part. And I just, it actually made me laugh out loud. And I know it's not funny because it's actually awful. <laughs> the way you describe it in your writing is funny. And then obviously the obstacle course as well, which is probably one of the most famous blogs that I've heard about it's all over the internet your blog 
<laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the obstacle courses, it, it was sort of, you know, that was, I was just trying to describe how, how I felt looking back at all those, you know, then over the years, a number of times I tried to stop and I'd gone a few days and then started up again. And, you know, it's only when you get a bit of time behind you that you realise how much energy you wasted doing the hard bits over and over again. And I sort of really wanted to describe how, how that felt from the other side, if that makes mm. sense. And, you know, because it's a really... When you when you start on this journey, you have no particularly if you're, you know, if, if you if you're doing it on your own, which which you know I was at the time, you you don't know whether it's what is at the other end and whether it's worth all the, you know, all the the pain and the drama and the sort of you know the difficulties that you go through to get there. So again, I just wanted people to know that you know it really there really it really is worth persevering and that. You know, it really is possible um, because sometimes it doesn't feel like it is, does it? <laughs> it doesn't. That is my favourite bit. But my mum is my mum's now sober as well, um, so she read your book. And we have we're near Hollingworth Lake here, and every time we walk around, there's a field with bunnies in it. And she's <laughs> the picture, and she's like, "I'm at the bunny field." <laughs> <laughs> it's just amazing. And I think what makes your book so special is because it was written as a blog. So your heart and soul is in it and you can you can just relate to it. Like now, I'm just over 18 months sober and I forget what it was like in them early days. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And you know what? Memory is a really funny thing because, you know, you look back at, you know, three years ago, two years ago, and, and it's really difficult to remember what it was really like when you were there. So, you know, you're right. I mean, when I wrote the book, I was it was based on those all those blog posts I wrote at the time. And even, you know, I mean, I, I wrote the book very quite soon afterwards. But even, you know, even that soon after, I I couldn't remember quite how bad it was. And you know, and the whole cancer, the whole breast cancer thing as well. I I think I to protect myself, I'd made myself forget what it felt like and it was reading back through it um it was quite hard actually and you know and I always say to people when when you quit drinking it's really helpful to write it down because you do forget don't you you know and it's so it's so easy to get to about six months and you think oh actually you know I'm absolutely fine and of course I can drink sensibly now and I'm never going to get myself into that sort of pickle again and you know and you forget how bad it was and uh, and it really helps being able to remind yourself I mean did you write did you write down what you were going through I, I did write quite a few blogs at the beginning even just on my phone I typed them and I put a few out there they're not I didn't publish a lot of them, but they did massively, massively help me. And when I look back at them now, I'm like, oh my God, how did I get through that? And I think writing did really help me as well in the early days. But speaking of memory, that's where like you talk about the wine witch, another famous quote in, um, <laughs> in the sober sphere. <laughs> like you, after a few months, you do get that, in your bar, in your head, don't you like? Oh, you might yeah. be all right to have a couple. Oh, I haven't got a problem because I had a problem. I wouldn't have been able to stop for this long. <laughs> so I think by you naming it the wine witch, like I hear everybody speak about that. It's, it was just genius. I just love everything about your book. 
I'm like a proper fan. Well, well, you know, I mean, the wine witch thing I found really helpful because, you know, I sort of, I felt like, um, and actually I, I, the idea came from Alan Carr and Jason Bale, you know, their books, which, which I think came before Annie Grace's. Um, and, uh, and they talked about, I think it was, it was Alan Carr who talked about some a sort of snake or something that was sort of some sort of, I think, I think he described it as a snake. And the snake didn't quite do it for me. I mean, I knew yeah. what he meant. But um, because, because my sort of, my thing had a voice, you know, uh, the wine witch made sense to me because I could hear her, you know, sort of <laughs> constantly getting at me. And, and it just helps to sort of, you know, it helps to, to realise that it's not you. It's sort of, you know, that is your, the addict voice and it's not you because otherwise you feel like you're constantly arguing with yourself. Does that make sense? You know, it makes yeah, yeah, definitely. In one of our earlier podcasts, I actually talk about how I, in the beginning, and I do remember this, but only because I've written it down, I can remember it. I would have forgotten. But I talk about having a big debate in my head and I actually could, it's my own voice. So, you know, but it's going you can have a drink. No, don't be so ridiculous. You've done this many days now. No, not yet, but you can have one. And, and it really was. It's just noise. It's noise. Yeah, yeah. Bat off all the time. Yeah, it's funny. I was I was on the um, I was on um, <laughs> this great radio program last night called um, Badass Woman's Hour, and and they said to me, um, you know, why? You know, surely it's all about moderation, and surely it's all about um, you know about doing things sort of you know just being sensible. And uh, and you know, how do you? And I tried. I was explaining. That, you know the difference between people who can moderate and, and people who can't you know like me and and how you know I, I think that you know some people are, are very much all or nothing about everything about mm. alcohol about you know about life generally and yeah. I, that's very much how I feel and um you know and I, I they said to me well how how do you know if you're an addict you know how do you know if it's a problem and you know for me the real sign that you know you are not drinking normally or smoking normally or, or, you know, whatever your addiction might be is, is the noise in your head. It's that yeah. constant sort of debate that, you know, that just becomes so tiring and, and boring, doesn't it? You know? yeah. And it's <laughs> um, the time it takes up, you know, like yeah. when you're not drinking, you're thinking about drinking or you're recovering from a hangover and then you're thinking about your next drink. And for me, I, you know, your book was the one that Lisa recommended because Lisa had been stopped a full year before I had. And mm. she was trying to find something. I'm quite scientific minded. And she was trying to find something that I could relate to in real life as well. So I think your book strikes a real good balance of that. So you've got a lot of the facts in there, but it's about your life with the facts and, you know, how you lived through that. Yeah, and actually, the, the the facts I put in there, um, I put in as I discovered them. If you see what I mean, yeah. I like through you know that sort of journey, I did a whole load of research, and I just sort of you know so so it was the things that were relevant to me at the time. So you know, it might be about how alcohol affects your sleep, or how it affects your moods, or you know whatever. And it was you know, and then I looked at when I got to the point where you know, things suddenly got very hard again. I discovered pause, you know, sort of post-alcohol um, withdrawal sy- syndrome. And um, and I wrote about that. And, you know, so, so yeah, so I, I, I sort of put it in at the point at which it becomes relevant, <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense. How long have you actually been stopped drinking now then, Claire? 
Um, God, nearly five years now. So, so at the beginning of March, it'll be five years, which... Yeah, we couldn't see whether it was four or five. Yeah. Really, so, and do, do you um, still find that you get pause now or is it kind of... Uh, no, no, not really. I mean, they say that it's it takes about two years before everything completely settles down. And that's certainly how I felt. You know, I haven't... You know, every now and again, I think, oh, you know, this is the sort of moment where it would be quite nice to have a drink. But it's such a fleeting thought. And, you know, I don't have those mood swings anymore or, or any sort of, you know, it's nothing more than a, a, a fleeting little sort of, oh, that's, uh, you know, that, that would have been a champagne moment in the old days, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, you know, the weird thing is, at the beginning, do you remember how long, like, one day felt? Oh, yeah, we have this conversation a lot, don't we? And, you know, one day felt... <laughs> now there's not enough time. Yeah, I mean, I counted in days and then I started counting in weeks and then eventually I started counting in months. And now I'm honestly at the point where I have to think, is it four years or five years? And, oh, wow. You know, that's, you know that, that's extraordinary, really. And, you know, and it goes so fast. I almost, you know, I want it to slow down again in a way. Yeah. We said the exact same thing and we, you know, we talked to a lot of people in the early days and they're like, I'm so bored, the weekend seems to last forever and I'm like, oh, I wish, I wish I, I don't wish I was back there at all, but I, can, <laughs> I felt like I had all that time again because that's where you find your creativity really and learning to sit with yourself in that what seems like forever sometimes can be quite difficult. And actually, you know, it's because at the beginning it opens up such a hole in your life. And what I find so exciting about all the people I've talked to over the last few years is the things that is the things that, the, the things that <laughs> people do to fill that hole. And people find the most fabulous ways of of you know of spending the time that they used to spend thinking about shrinking. So, you know, I mean, for instance, um, you know, I remember I was, uh, have, had an email conversation with this lady who, um, you know, I said to her, look, what did you love doing when you were, when you were a child? Because often that's a really good indication as to sort of what you're, you know, what you might be able to find helpful now. And she said, I loved riding. And, you know, she took up riding again for the first time in about 30 years and she it became her big passion and then it became her job and her career and you know and it's amazing I've talked to people who've set up you know who've, who've taken up yoga again or they've set up new businesses or they've found new love or you know I mean all sorts of you know amazing things people achieve when they find, you know, find that time back. It's just life-changing and I think you've had such a big part of changing people's lives. It must be quite amazing to think, wow, I've made, helped make that difference. Well, you know, that's really kind of you, but I, mean, I, I feel really, whenever anybody says, you know, says that to me, I, I you know, I just, you know, if, if you quit drinking, you have done that yourself. You know, <laughs> it's such a huge achievement and I'm really you know I'd love to think that I helped somehow but the the achievement really is your own you know it's it because it is it's hard and uh, yeah. and it I, I think I don't think there's many people who do that who don't get to the point where they say that was one of the best things I've ever done in my life for myself um, yeah and even when it is hard like 
we were speaking about this the other day. Um, in the first 100 days when I look back at everything that actually got thrown at me, but I still knew that drink, not drinking was going to be the best thing that could happen to me. Even in that short amount of time, I did. I knew it was... Yeah. It wasn't nice, but I knew that drink wouldn't help it. But that was through reading and, well, listening. I'm, I listened to your book rather than read it. I and, read it. And I know <laughs> you're nowhere near old enough to be my mum, right? But the, way, but the way you tell your story was like when my mum used to read stories to me in bed. I just loved it. It was so... <laughs> And I re-listened. It's the comfort side of it. Yeah, it? definitely. And I re-listened to some of it the other day. Um, and it just, yeah, it, I can't remember what I was going to say about it. I lost my track then. So like thinking of my mum reading me a book in bed. So <laughs> like, went way off track. We've both done this at times oh, on no, the podcast. This is what, <laughs> so when I re-listened to it, I realised that I tell everybody the things that you speak about in that book. So I was like, oh, that's where I got it from. And <laughs> like quite a big advocate for self-care. Um, do you still look after yourself, Claire? Uh, yeah, I do actually, and I, I, I tell you why. Because um, you know, the the times I've only times now I find hard. I'm really used to to dealing with stress and anxiety and all those sorts of things without drink. I can do that without you know without a problem now. But the one time I find I find that I sort of slightly miss it is when something really really good happens. Oh, so. Yeah. You know, if I get some really good news and I think, oh God, the cake isn't going to cut, cut it. <laughs> I need something more than a slice of cake. And, um, and I find what really helps there is to have a list of things that you can do for yourself that just make you feel like you, you've earned it. They're like a, a really good reward. And, yeah. you know, and what I used to do to reward myself was poison myself, you know, and yeah. now, I do is I'll book a pedicure or I'll go and have my hair professionally blow dried or I'll go and buy some flowers or something you know and I have a little mental list of of those things that are so in you know at those moments where I would have thought you know now is the time to get completely trashed to celebrate some great news I will do one of those things so and I think that's really important because you know, you deserve to, you have to take those moments in life and really celebrate them and pat yourself on the back and, and you know, and, and really sort of, because life isn't always easy. So when, when it is good, you've got to, you know, you've got to make the most of it, haven't you? Definitely. And you've just uh, had great news, haven't you, with the release of your first novel? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, my life has has changed so much since since I quit drinking because I mean I'd always wanted to write write I'd always loved writing I'd loved reading and um and I never thought that I could do it and you know after I wrote the sober diaries I thought um I wanted I wanted to carry on writing and I also wanted to explore this whole idea of what happens when you tell the truth about your life because actually writing the sober diaries was you know me being you know for the first time in a long time being honest about what was really going on and if anyone had looked at my Facebook feed or or my Instagram feed or whatever at that time they would have thought it all looked you know pretty perfect and in control and all fine and it wasn't all fine it was all a big mess and I was the only person that knew that 
And, um, and when I wrote the book, you know, it not only did it make me feel like for the first time in my life, I, my what I was showing people was matching up with the reality, <laughs> but it also it changed other people's lives too. So I thought, well, what would happen if everybody started telling the truth about their lives? And that led to this idea for a novel, which is called The Authenticity Project. And, um, and it's all about a little green notebook, which um, uh, an artist called Julian Jessup, who is 79 years old, writes, he writes on the front, The Authenticity Project, and he leaves it in a cafe. And inside it says, everybody lies about their lives and what would happen if he told the truth instead. And he tells the truth about his life and which is that he's very lonely. And the, the uh, book is picked up by the cafe owner who reads his story and decides to track him down and make his life better. And she writes her story and leaves it somewhere else where it's picked up by somebody else who actually happens to be an addict. <laughs> so so, uh, so I, there's a, a fabulous character called Hazard who is a, an alcohol and cocaine addict. And so, so we see Hazard getting sober. So, you know, so it's, it's all... If you've read The Sober Diaries and you read my, my novel, you'll see there's a number of little stories that you will recognize that are from my life. So do you remember, do you remember the story about chucking the, when I chucked the cauliflower at my husband's head when, uh, <laughs> when I had <laughs> You know, um, one of the stories that I tell on here is just before I got sober, I threw a sandwich at my husband's head. <laughs> and now you've said that, I actually really do remember you throwing the cauliflower at his head. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. Uh, well, I wrote that story into the book. There's a character called Alice who is a uh, mummy Instagrammer and she, she does exactly that, but with a, with a whole load of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, so. Wow. So as, if you read it, you'll see, um, I don't know, again, in, the, in, in Sober Diaries, I, uh, one of the things I talk about is how my family play this game called Yellow Car. You know, where whenever you see a yellow car, you have to say yellow car. Anyway, that's yeah. So there's lots of little details like that, that if you've read the Sober Diaries, you'll recognise. Oh, that's amazing. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Is, is it out on audio, Audible as well? Yeah, well, actually, it's out on Tuesday in audio and, and Kindle, and then... It's, but it's not properly launched till April when it comes out in hardback as well. But if you want the audio, the audio is available from Tuesday. Which oh, is a bit yeah. fantastic. That's definitely on our wish list. Are you it? excited to get it out? Well, yeah, I'm terrified though too. You know, I mean, I was, I mean, it's funny. I was terrified before the Sober Diaries launched as well, but in a different way. And then, then it was all about what I was worried about then was people, everybody knowing all my secrets. Yeah. So, you ever had that dream where, where you 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 really believe that you're walking down the street naked and everybody is staring at you? Yeah. Well, I had that dream several times before the Sober Diaries came out, and that was sort of my subconscious sort of stressing about telling, yeah. telling everyone my secrets, and um, and it, that was terrifying. And this is terrifying in a different way because it's sort of you know I'm just yeah I just hope people like it so. Oh, I'm yeah. sure they will. It sounds really, really good, and I can't wait. I'm going to. Sp- I've got a credit as well. I've got a credit. Oh, I'm excited. I'm saving. <laughs> Let me know what you think. <laughs> no, we definitely will do. I mean, it's quite an interesting transition, I think, to go from like telling your story into writing a novel. But you do say somewhere, I think, in the Sober Diaries, that you wanted to be a writer. From a very yeah. 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 Um. I, I, it's what. Yeah. It is. Again. You know. I. I 
you know, I, I spoke earlier about, you know, when you look back as to when you were a child at what you loved doing then, that, that's often a clue as to, you know, what, what you you what your passion might be later on and and for me it was always reading and writing that was my that was my big thing and I didn't write for years and years and years until I quit drinking and then I started writing a, uh, um, my blog and I haven't stopped since it's just sort of you know it's it's been a therapy for me and it's still therapy so you know I don't write about about the whole drink thing so much anymore but I just you know, writing is my way of switching off. It's, it gives, it's, you know how, you know, you still get the sort of, you know, all the chatter in, in, in your head and, you know, you just need, I think everybody needs some point in the day where you can just do something to sort of switch your brain off. And I used to drink to switch my brain off and now I write. So uh, what do you guys do? What's your, what's your... I'm a runner. I do a lot of running um, and because the sober experiment came from both of us, because we've been best friends for, well, 30 years. And so we've kind of evolved. We started drinking together, then Lisa stopped, then I stopped. So the sober experiment came from that. Because, both that done that. Yeah. So because if, if one of you had and the other hadn't, it would have been, you know, it would have been much more difficult. We do wonder where our friendship... I was nearly unfriending her. <laughs> <laughs> we, we do wonder where our friendship might have gone. I, I do believe we'd have always stayed friends because we, we really do feel like we are sisters without the blood connection. Yeah, we do. definitely. Well, I, I don't think we'd have had the closeness we have. And we do, we, we see each other at least once a week, usually twice now. And we spend a lot of time together. And when we're together, it's on the Sober Experiments, doing our podcast. We do workplace presentations as well. So we're both getting to speak a lot and to share our story. But we're very different as well. So, like, um, I studied biology in my degree, and I do a lot of um, reading factually, and I like to do a lot of research. So that's my kind of way of switching off. Which she couldn't imagine anything worse than sticking a book and reading. That's, I that's just wing it. Is it when when you've got sort of complementary skills? Because if you were both exactly the same, then you wouldn't add anything. If that makes sense. Yeah, but, and so you, you've got your running, which is and running is a brilliant way of again of switching off all the chatter and all the stress and anxiety. It's sort of you know it's it's a great and it's, it it also helps you release it helps release sort of serotonin and dopamine as well, like which yeah. helps. So you know so that's perfect. And um, what 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 do what do you do? My early on, mine was walking, so I would kind of switch off by walking and listening to books. And then I got, in, yeah. yeah, I did. I rescued a dog that I always said kind of rescued me, really. Mm. Each other, so really. <laughs> quite a few dog walks. I really struggled to switch off. So what I'd find is I would get into books, and then I'd re I'd listen to book after book. And then I'd be listening to too many books of self-help. So I was constantly trying to self-help myself. <laughs> so I found it really hard. So meditation for me, I took up meditation and went to class. Oh, see, I've never been able to do that. I tried. Um, it was so difficult. It really, really was. And I still, well, they call it meditation practice. So you're always practicing it. And I used to think you kind of had to go and sit there and just switch off and end up in la-la land. <laughs> And that's not the case. I think it just made me more mindful about everything. And yeah, meditation really helped me. Well, you wouldn't miss a day now, would you? No, I do it every morning. I get up earlier. To oh, that's brilliant. 15 minutes meditation. And I do see that as my time. And I think then by the time the kids are getting up for school and work, 
I feel like I've had my little bit of time there then. That's when I write as first thing in the morning while the kids are still asleep. But um, it's funny what you say about dogs because, you know, I've, I've written a number of blog posts about how I think dogs are a sober girl's best friends. Yeah, they are. Dog was brilliant when I was quitting drinking because like you, you know, I go out on a long dog walk and it's really, I mean, not only is the sort of fresh air and being outside really good for you, but it gets you away from all those, the, you know, it gets you away from the fridge and, and the... And yeah. the wine glasses and all those sort of, you know, all those associations that you have with alcohol. And I did this exactly the same as you. I listened to an audio book because I sort of felt like if I was walking and I was listening to something else, it just, you know, again, it doesn't give you any space to think about, you know, about anything you're stressed about. It doesn't give you time to think about booze or anything because you're yeah. totally absorbed. So, yeah, so I think walking and audio books is, is great therapy. Yeah, there's a there's a bit in your book um, where you describe smashing the top off the Bex Blue when you went on holiday, <laughs> and honestly, that I had to phone Lisa at that point in the book because remembering she'd done it a year prior, and I was like, "Oh my God, have you heard where Claire has to open the alcohol-free beer?" That's like when we were trying to open a bottle of Prosecco in Ireland. <laughs> I had a very similar experience, except for ours was alcoholic, and I was trying to smash the lid off, and we ended up honestly like the time about an inch of the bottle left yeah <laughs> still drank it still drank it that was what seemed because I've done that myself with alcohol and that's what seems so ironic about that moment <laughs> <laughs> but, you know it wasn't even alcohol but I was so desperate to sort of get into that bottle of Bex Blue just to sort of take the edge off you know I get that though I get and it alcohol free drinks for you know we quite like them don't we and not all the time but especially at the beginning it would just take the edge off and I remember going to a hotel and I'd built myself up to have this meal and a non-alcoholic beer and they didn't have any and Mm. it really threw me and that's yeah it did it really affected me because I'd built myself up to have it and they didn't have it and I was like (gasps) What it's amazing how it works. I mean, for some people, it's a real trigger and they don't yeah. on it. And so, you know, I, I think it's really important to, to always say to, you know, that, that everybody has to do what's right for them. And, you know, if it doesn't help, then steer clear. But, you know, I found it really, really helpful because it's sort of, you know, in the early days, it, your subconscious is so used to associating you know, things that look like alcohol and smell like alcohol and taste like alcohol as, you know, a way of de-stressing, that it still works even when the alcohol isn't there. So, you know, I, the first time I drank Bex Blue, I really, um, you know, I, I really felt drunk. And I remember looking at it over and over, you know, and Googling the sort of alcohol content and just, you know, I couldn't quite believe that, you know, it it wasn't real. Um, and so so I found it just... I found it a really good prop in the early days. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, I mean, I, it was a really good barometer as to how I was doing because initially I was drinking about, you know, I was probably drinking two or three alcohol-free beers a day in the early yeah. days. And then when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, that went up. So, so at that point I was probably drinking about five a day. Yeah. Now I drink maybe two a week. Um, and it just naturally, and it's really weird when you're used to sort of, you know, with alcohol, you, you gradually goes up and up and up and up. Whereas with alcohol-free drinks, I found it went, it went down and down and down. And yeah. Down. 
It yeah. does. And it was a really good barometer for me as to how well I was doing is how little I needed it, if that makes sense. It does. I've never thought about it like that. I must be all right because I've got a few non-alcoholic beers in the fridge and they've been there since Christmas, I think they've been there. That's like, oh, that would never have been heard They've been of. gone by Boxing Day if they were alcoholic. <laughs> I had a, lot, a number of people have said to me, sort of, you know, should I worry about the fact that I'm drinking, you know, three or four a day? And I've always said no, because it will gradually tail off. You know, as yeah. you need less, you will drink less of them. And it's, it's completely opposite from, you know, a, an alcoholic drink where you drink, you know, the more you drink, the more you want. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So can we just go back and talk briefly about your diagnosis of breast cancer? Mm. So that must have been really tricky to deal with at the time, when, especially when you weren't drinking in terms of if you'd been used to a coping mechanism of having alcohol. So what did you do during that period to just stop you from picking up a drink again? Um, well, um, yeah, it was, it's funny because I'm, I'm actually really relieved that it happened when it did, because by the time I got my diagnosis, I'd been sober for eight months. Yeah. So I was sort of, you know, I was much better at it than I, I would have been. I think if it had happened much earlier on, I'm not sure I would have, you know, I think I probably would have caved. Um, yeah. But by eight months, I had realized that actually alcohol wasn't helping me at all. It was actually making my life much harder. So I was at, by that stage, I knew that actually the last thing in the world I needed was to drink because it would just make everything that I was going through so much more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, but the things, so to answer your question, how, how did I cope with it without the alcohol? Um, alcohol-free beer was a real yeah. prop. Um, and, and as I said, I, I did end up drinking loads of it at that point um, because it just gave me something to do with my hands and to take, you know, just, it's a, you know, it gave me something, a prop to take my mind off things. Um, but the other things that really helped, um, crying. <laughs> I think... You know, before I quit drinking, I never used to cry that much. You know, I sort of, you know, I, I think I always used to bottle stuff up. And I, and I think what it taught me, and, you know, both quitting drinking and the cancer taught me is that crying is really therapeutic. Brilliant. And when you're having a really hard time, don't, you know, don't stop yourself crying. Just make, you know, if you can just howl for half an hour, it's really, it makes you feel so much better. It's a sort of, it's like a natural pressure valve. And I think being British, we sort of think, oh, cry, you know, that'll just make things worse. It doesn't, <laughs> crying matter it's like sort of you know it, it releases all that sort of you know all that anxiety so I did a lot of crying <laughs> so what I used to do is I would leave because I couldn't cry in front of the kids so I would take the dog out for a walk into a park and I would go to some you know quiet place in in, in the, you know, the quietest place I could find in the park and I would howl and you know, and every now and again, I'd bump into somebody I knew, and it was really embarrassing. Oh, <laughs> oh mascara! <laughs> I found that really, really helpful. And then the third thing that I did, um, you know, whenever I, I I could find the time and the money, was massage. Um, and because you know, I just found that I just I was so physically tense, 
um, that actually having somebody just help release all that tension that I was holding around my shoulders and my neck and everything was really helpful. So yeah, crying massage and Bex Blue. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a dream. Perfect combination of therapies, yeah. It's funny though, I've started, I went for a massage last week and it really made me think like, I just wouldn't have done that before. I had a really bad back and normally I suppose I would have gone to the doctors to sort sort it out and I was like, oh, I can actually go for a massage. (laughs) I just thought about doing them things before. No, and, you know, if you think about how much money we used to spend on booze, you know, I mean, I, I, I still, you know, I don't go for a massage that often, but when I do, you know, I try not to feel guilty about it because I think, you know, I mean, I, I've saved so much money by not drinking that treating yourself to that sort of thing from time to time is is fine, you know. Um, Absolutely. And it, it is so much better for you mentally and physically than drinking was, <laughs> so... Yeah. I keep telling myself that, Claire, with new dresses. <laughs> oh, I would have spent this on a weekend. <laughs> what I would have done. <laughs> How have you found um, like family life has changed since stopping drinking and like dealing with children and so on? Um, so I think for me, the main the main difference is everything is just much calmer. You know, I think our whole house is much calmer than it used to be um, because, you know, I think when you're drinking, everything is just up and down the whole time. And, it, you know, and kids, kids pick up on that, don't they? You know, sort yeah. of, and, and, you know, if you shout, they shout and everything that, you know, the whole sort of general noise in the house increases. And, and you know, so I think generally everything is much calmer and I think we're all much more on the same wavelength because the thing I feel awful about now is, you know, I, is how much time I spent running away from my own kids. Um, and you know, and I used to, I used to do read bedtime stories as quickly as I could so I could go and open a bottle of wine and I would, you know, if we were going on holiday, I would try and arrange it so that the kids had something to do so we could do something else. And, you know, and it was always about sort of adult time versus kid time. And when you stop, you have to force that delineation anymore. So we do far more stuff as a family than, than we ever did before. And, you know, I, um, you know, I used to weekends, for instance, you know, I would always, design around drinking which the kids obviously aren't interested in whereas yeah. now I'll, I'll think well what are we going to do at the weekend and we'll organize a to do something you know together as a family so we do a lot more stuff than we ever did before do you find that do you find absolutely. that absolutely yeah. yeah with um the kids I suppose we we used to go out on a weekend for meals so we'd be like let's all go for a meal looking back now it wasn't about the food it was so we could have a drink and I remember my youngest like after we say can we go home now and I'd be like mm-hmm. no why do you want to go home now come on you know we're just talking and I feel awful about it now because they must have been so bored and now if we go for food and they're like should we go and I'm like yeah <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to get back home. So yeah, weekends kind of revolved around drinking, and I don't think you realise at the time that it does, and that you are trying to rush through the story, or, or you don't tell yourself you realise it. I think when you stop and you look back, you're like, oh yeah, 
Yeah, and, and I, I, I talked in the in the book, and there was a chapter which I called sort of restlessness, and um, and I think I was talk, I was on holiday in Cornwall, and I was talking about how you know when I was drinking, I always felt restless. I was always looking at what was going to happen next, and I think that's because in my head I was always planning the next the next drink and the next sort of time I could yeah. sort of you know, so so whatever I was doing, I was always thinking ahead to, to what what was going to happen after that. And, you know, and I think that one of the great things about family life when you don't drink is that you are much more in the moment than, than you know, I ever was when I was drinking because I'm not always trying to rush through an activity to get to the next, the next drink or, the, you know, the next adult time. So, yeah, definitely. So what, co- what kind of conversation do you think you'll be having with your children as they get to that age of drinking? Are you, are you kind of thinking they won't drink or they will experiment? Or what's your well, you know what, my, my eldest is now 16. So, you know, so, you know, all her friends drink now and, um, and she drinks from time to time. And, um, you know, what's, what's really, we had this really interesting conversation actually the other day, cause she said, um, she was talking about the fact that, you know, um, uh, most of her friends vape as well. And, yeah. um, and she said, um, and she said that, you know, she was, under a lot of pressure to vape and and she said well so I turned around to my friends and I said well the problem I've got is that my mum's an addict and uh, addiction is is hereditary and so I have to be really careful about things like that and apparently I went oh yeah yeah that's fine completely get it (laughs) you're a good excuse then now (laughs) and and actually you know it was quite a cruel excuse you know it wasn't sort of you know and everybody completely accepted it and and nobody puts pressure on her when you know if she uses that sort of you know that excuse and um uh, but she does she does drink um sometimes and what what i've said to to her and what i say to you know any teenagers who ask me about these things is that you know i i think there are three rules that you should try and keep in mind when you start drinking and uh one is never drink alone um, and never drink more than three times a week on three different occasions a week, and never drink more than three drinks in any one go. And if you can remember those things, and you know, and everyone goes, you know, when you're sort of 16, 17, 18, that seems really reasonable. And I, I say, look, do you have any, do you think those rules seem fair? And they go, absolutely. And do you think they'll be easy to stick to? And they go, absolutely. And I say, well, no, if you get to, 10 years from now and you find yourself saying, oh, that rule about not drinking alone, that doesn't really count, you know, and you think, find yourself thinking, oh, that three times a week, that's, that's not really necessary to stick to three times a week. Then you know that sort of it's starting to, you know, take hold of your life um, because those are very reasonable rules to stick to and they're not ones I ever could. (laughs) I think that's brilliant. I've got a 21-year-old who um, she works with me and my mum in our other business but she also works behind a bar so there's always an excuse really to have a drink you know after work or and I'm going to speak to her about that because I think it's just brilliant yeah it's good advice and I probably get on a case a little bit more than I should I didn't at first but mm. I think I do or I'm just really aware of when she does go out and drink so I think I perhaps 
through her head in a little bit. But if we stuck to something like that, then I might not have. <laughs> you can't say to them, don't drink. No, oh, no. You know, I mean, that, that this is the world we live in. And, mm. you know, and we all went through, you know, <laughs> had to go through our own learning curves here. And, and you know, and we can't expect our, our kids not to. But I think if you can get them to agree to some rules that they really believe are doable and fair and, you know, reasonable, then, um, then, you know, that's a really good thing to do because it just gives them, you know, hopefully they'll never forget that conversation and it will give them something to look back at and think, oh, actually, you know, I remember how reasonable I thought that was, so why don't I think that anymore? Yeah, that's really it's a really good, good point. Yeah. You know, I mean, do you remember, you know, I, mean, I, I remember the first time I started drinking by myself and I'd moved into a flat on my own and I was 26 and it was just when Bridget Jones was out and sort of, you know, an ab fab, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. It was all sort of ladette culture and, you know, and I... I remember thinking sort of, you know, of course it's fine to drink on your own. Bridget Jones drinks on her own. Yeah. I live by myself. So, you know, I mean, I've got to be, you know, there's, there's, there's nobody else here to drink with. And, you know, and, and I should have, I, I should have realized then that, you know, drinking, drinking is fine if it's about socializing, but, you know, when it's drinking on your own isn't okay. And I don't know, you know, at some point we start, we stopped thinking that it stopped being a taboo and I don't know why, but, um, but I think it still should be. I think you might, I think you find excuses as you go through life. Like you say, oh, well, I live on my own, so I'm going to drink on my own. You know, like for me, it was, well, I've got a really stressful job now, so I deserve a drink on a Thursday, you know, so I, I gave myself reasons to break my own rules. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I did exactly the same. I think this is why I really did like your book so much because I moved into a flat when I was a lot younger than 28. I was like 17. Yeah. <laughs> but going to the shop, buying a bottle of wine, and I didn't even like wine at the time. And a co- the magazine Cosmopolitan, because I thought I've moved into this flat, so I should like that magazine and I should drink. <laughs> and I actually remember doing it and thinking, Oh, I don't even really like this wine. And I didn't really like the magazine. I, <laughs> I just thought it was all adverts and really boring. But I thought it was like the thing to do. And um, so that was the first time. And it took me years to learn to like wine after that. <laughs> I forced myself to do it because I thought you should. Complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I first started drinking. Do you do you remember the sort of things we used to drink as teenagers? So because alcohol tastes so bad, um, you know that you used to sort of. So I used to drink. Um, God, I used to drink some awful things: um, <laughs> martini and lemonade, yeah, Southern Comfort and lemonade, um, oh, yeah. lager and black currant. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Oh. You know, and you'd just try and you'd constantly try and mix up something sweet to sort of make it taste better. You know? yes. We were all sat in our area, it was cider, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was a drink called wine, and it was disgusting. And we used to get um, castaway. A, a castaway and pour it in to make what we'd call a blastaway. <laughs> it was like an alcoholic lethal lilt. Oh, it was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it did the job, didn't it, that you wanted as a teenager and mm. got you drunk. Mm. I think, like you say, it's that ladette culture because we grew up through, like, you know, in, in our drinking days through the 90s and into the millennium. And that's when it was like, you know, 
It was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a really strong woman because I can down a pint as fast as that bloke. <laughs> Yeah, is that? I mean, I honestly thought it was part of being a good feminist, you know. Yeah, yeah. So can we? And how can they turn around and tell us that we have to be, you know, sip on a little baby sham or sort of, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and actually, I think one of the things we never took into account was that they were drinking pints of relatively weak beer and we were drinking those huge goblets of really rather strong wine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> with a sort of lower body weight. So uh, so actually we weren't even just keeping up. We were sort of going past them. So, yeah. It's quite common though. And, you, you know, when you speak to women, particularly women um, from like 30 up, that's exactly the same story that, you know, well, I was trying to down my wine and keep up with him on his pints for a remark of feminism. And I think that's quite strong. And now the movement to me seems to be that the strong women are the ones saying, ah, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm going to look after myself. And we get a lot of that, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? Things have changed so much in the last few years because, you know, when, one of the things I found hard about quitting was that, you know, the whole, all the imagery around quitting drinking was miserable. You know, just the word, you know, talking about being alcoholics and recovery and disease. And, you know, the idea was sort of, you know, and I think we were very much made to feel that if you quit drinking, your life was pretty much over. And, you know, and that, uh, you know, it was all going to be really rather miserable and you were going to have to spend, you know, your whole time taking one day at a time, sort of trying very, very hard not to, you know, Know, not to, to fall back down the slippery slope and you know and I think now people realize that you can give up drinking for positive health reasons and that you know it's actually a very you know it's, it's a very positive life change it's not a miserable thing that you are forced into doing because you're sick you know which no, is definitely. the way you used to you know used to be made to feel so so it, yeah I mean things it's arranging. It's it's uh, it's yes. It's it's quite miraculous, really. There's such a big movement now, isn't there? And I think it's down to people like yourself for being brave enough to write about their story. Because um, we see it, we do a lot on Instagram, yeah. and the movement is just. And when you know, we've got um, as well as the sober experiment, we we've got be sober Manchester. So you know. Mm. And me and a couple of friends set that up and we all go out, we go for meals. We went out on Friday night, didn't yeah. we, to the Ritz and had like a power ballad night. So we were all like dan- no, dancing and singing and it was absolutely bonkers. And I think when I first or before I thought about not drinking, I was so frightened and I used to feel sorry for people that had to stop drinking. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, and I, the Instagram thing, I think, is really interesting because when I first quit, um, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of people like me who were blogging, um, but it was all anonymous. And, you know, and I yeah. honestly for, you know, for the first year and, um, and I would have been really horrified at the idea that anybody would know it was me and what's great about the whole sober Instagram thing is all those people who are out there who are going yeah you know this is me this is what I'm doing it's all visual there's no hiding behind pseudonyms and sort of shame and all that sort of stuff it's very much more in your face and proud and you know, and and out there and that makes such a difference to everybody because you know it's, it just takes the whole takes the whole shame out of the equation which is uh, you know which is really great 
So, you know, the, what you guys are doing is fabulous. And we're passionate about that part, aren't we, of yeah. taking the shame out of it. We know when we go to some workplaces, they're really shocked when you turn up. Yeah, they're they like, don't only imagine. Oh, I didn't expect you to look like that. And we're like walking bright and breezy with our sober T-shirts <laughs> yeah. on. And we're like, oh. <laughs> um, But yeah, we get quite a funny response. But by the end of it, they love it, don't they? And it's, yeah, that's what we're about is just taking that stigma out. Because what we find is that actually, not only did there used to be a stigma around alcoholism and recovery, but actually there's quite a stigma around the word sober as well. Mm. That you must have had a disastrous problem and been in the gutter somewhere in order to now be sober. So we're doing a lot of work trying to remove that. Yeah, and again, I think I think one of the big things that's changed recently is it used to be everybody used to see things very black and white. You were either a normal drinker or you were a chronic alcoholic. And, yeah. And there was nothing in between. So if you said you gave up, you've given up drinking, everybody immediately used to sort of make assumptions about you, you know, that, that you were sort of a down and out drunk and you were sort of, you know, you put your children in danger and you all sorts of stuff. And, you know, I think now, again, there's a much more of an understanding of that whole grey area in between. And, you know, you've heard people talk about grey area drinking and, you know, and, you know, most of us fall into that middle area. We're not either one extreme or the other. Um, and just because you don't fit a sort of, you know, the, the image of the sort of chronic alcoholic doesn't mean that giving up drinking isn't going to make your life much better, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it really does as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, Claire, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, me too. Thanks for having me on, guys. <laughs> it's been, I'm just, just interviewing you. <laughs> In Lisa's front room, that's what it is. She's like, Claire's been to my house. <laughs> I, I don't read that much. I, I used to read a lot when I was younger, and I, and I read a lot when I first stopped drinking. But I feel like I'm just past that bit of reading books now. Not all, I mean, like sober, quick lit books. I've, I'm ready to move on from that. Um, and I just, yours were just by far my favourite. So, and for me to listen to it all the way through. It's <laughs> a massive compliment, Claire. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. And uh, lots of love to you. Bye, my back there. Thank you. Bye.